In Luke chapter number 14, let's begin in verse number 25. Speaking of Jesus, it says that now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, that would be our earliest love, and wife and children, that would be our dearest love, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, that's our strongest love, we tend to love ourselves the most, Jesus said, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And I believe Jesus knew how difficult this would be for people to receive it. So he sends a word of blessing. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is, of course, one of the toughest passages of Scripture that you're going to find in your New Testament. This is not the message that's preached by the majority of the Western church today. The Lordship of Jesus has kind of faded out of the forefront of our messaging uh, in, the, in the Western church, and primarily I'm speaking of the American church. We have, as I've mentioned many times in this series, Billy's mentioned it also, we have boiled down the message of Jesus to a basic acknowledgement of just a few points. One, that we're sinners. Two, that we need a Savior. Three, that he is the Savior and he died on the cross to pay for or atone for our sins. Four, that he rose again. And five, whoever believes in him shall be saved. And we believe that that condensed message is all that there is to be said. And so what happens over years and decades is that those truths that I just mentioned, and all those things are true, they become a formula. They become a formula, and we package that formula, and we present it to whatever unsaved person we have our bullseye on in the moment, and we say to them, believe this and repeat a prayer of confession, and you will go to heaven when you die. Now, I am not here to tell you that people have not genuinely been born again through that process I just described. What I'm saying uh, is this, that if they have been born again by praying what we typically refer to as the sinner's prayer, if they've done it in the context of repentance and faith towards Jesus Christ, they are going to begin to live from that point forward a life that will be being transformed. There will be constant change, constant transformation. It doesn't necessarily all happen in a moment, but the Bible says that if any one of us is in Christ, we are new creations, the old passes away, and behold, all things are becoming new. Now, if you think about this, and this is my point today, and I've got a, I'm always aware at 9 a.m. I'm on a little bit of a clock, so listen quickly and I'll speak quickly. When, when Jesus came, he was not interested in, in sparking a rally or initiating some superficial religious movement. 
He wasn't marketing a product. The mission of Jesus was to advance, to establish and advance his everlasting kingdom. And at the center of that kingdom, you would find him ruling and reigning as the Lord over all. That is going to happen. Now, while Jesus was going about preaching, he would preach words that would shock the minds of the people. The wisdom would literally blow their minds. There was a couple of occasions where the testimony was, we've never heard anybody preach like this. And Jesus, of course, was also adding miraculous words. He was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. He was opening the eyes of the blind. He was casting out demons and showing power over all of the forces of hell. Not to mention there was the enjoyment of watching Jesus regularly take digs at the religious establishment. And so when all of that news goes abroad, not to mention he fed the people with bread and fish, and on occasion he would meet their natural appetites. And as that news spread, the crowds grew. They got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I want to begin in verses 25, through 20, uh, 25, 26, and 27, and, and I want to just curiously study what Jesus did when the crowds were beginning to be at their largest. This is the message that he preached, the one I just read to you, and it is counterintuitive to what many of us might think about how we are to approach the crowds today, the masses today, the community today, your family today, your, your, your ball club, your schoolmates, whatever it might be. We tend to make it more palatable. We tend to kind of dilute it from its potency and we, we prepare and present a milquetoast gospel that I am deeply concerned isn't regenerating anybody. So with that in mind, let's go into these verses. First of all, he pulls no punches. Look at the King's, King Jesus' radical expectation. We note, first of all, he's unfazed by the crowd size. The Bible is clear here. I don't need to linger on this. Great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them. Now, just very quickly here, from a preacher's perspective, uh, I'll preach to anybody. I have literally preached in a room with two or three people in it before and preached just like I'm preaching now. But if I'm giving my choice, I would rather preach to as many people as possible, not so they can see me or hear me, but because I believe when we preach the word of God, it will impact anybody that will listen to it by faith. And so, in my opinion, the more the merrier. I would rather preach to a great crowd. The difficulty is this. When that desire starts getting in a person and they start changing who they are and what they say and their assignment in order to garner big crowds, that's where we have this thing called compromise. Jesus never did that. Jesus always maintained the Father's messaging and he always sought to do what the Father was doing. And so he was unfazed by the crowd size. There would have been people in that crowd that day that were sincere that were already released themselves to him as Lord. They were following him. They had given up everything. They were going to follow King Jesus the rest of their days. There would have been other people who were perhaps there for curiosity. Let's see if he does one of those magic tricks. Let's see if he does something cool. There were other people that were maybe there to pick apart what he said. There was constantly people trying to trap him and catch him in something that he could say in order to, to uh, disown his ministry. And then there would have been other people who just thought, okay, this is our Messiah. Let's see what happens. But interestingly to me, Jesus was unfazed completely. He did not change or dilute or drop his message down to a more palatable level. He actually turned it up. And so let's look at what he says. The Bible says he turned towards them. That means he turns from where he was going, turns around to the crowds behind him, and here he confronts their loyalties and also our loyalties. Listen to what he says. Let the words of the king say what they say. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, and again, that's our earliest love in life, 
and wife and children, that would be our dearest love in life, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, that's our strongest love, Jesus says it very plainly, that person cannot be my disciple. Now, we get, need to get an understanding here because we, we know that the, the Lord of glory is not telling us to hate anybody. The word has a different nuance in the day of Jesus than it did, than it does in our day. So he's not telling you to act in a way that is antagonistic towards somebody, that dis, disavows the value of somebody. He's doing a comparative statement. He's using an intense, ri, intensely rich opening to grab the attention of the entire audience. You may remember this with me. You remember in the patriarch Jacob's life. And he had two wives. He had Rachel, who was beautiful, who he loved and loved and loved. But he ended up marrying her sister Leah first. And Leah was more plain. And Jacob's heart was for Rachel. But he married them both. With Leah, he conceived many kids. And so he obviously wasn't intensely repulsed by her. But the Bible says that Rachel was loved and Leah was hated. It's just a comparison that Jacob so much loved Rachel that his love for Leah comparatively was hate. Same thing that is said with Esau's birthright. It was Esau despising his birthright. Why? Not because he didn't want the inheritance, but because in the moment he valued more the food that was set before him. So he chose the food over his birthright. Both of them had value, but in the moment of decision, he intensely wanted the food, so he hated his birthright. That's what's being said here. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that our loyalties to our family can never supersede his lordship over our lives. This is hard. Uh, I think about young people when they start developing their own walk with the Lord. They're getting called to do something from God. Mom and dad have maybe had a plan for their lives all while they were being raised, and all of a sudden, God begins to stir that young person's heart, and it, 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 it's gripping them. It's a kingdom calling. It's the Holy Spirit. And when that young person presents it to mom and dad, mom and dad say, no, we won't support it. We don't believe in that. That's, not, that's irresponsible. That's dangerous. That doesn't seem right. It's unreasonable. And in the immediate moment, that young person who has the ability to decide for himself or herself what they are going to do. They have to make a decision. Am I going to obey the assignment of the Lord or am I going to love my mother and my father? Same thing with spouses. I don't need to break all of this down. Brothers, sisters, wife, children, all of these valid, amazing relationships that God can put into our lives. Jesus is saying right off the bat, it's the first thing he says to the crowd because they're following him. They're following him. And he turns around and he says, the ones that I am calling are the ones that will love me more than they love their parents, love me more than they love their spouse, love me more than they love their children, love me more than they love their siblings, and love me more than they love themselves. And that's the crux of the matter. That's the hardest part. Because he says, yes, even your own life. Because how many of us, listen, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but the default position of the human heart is we like pleasure and we like ease. If, if somebody's going to ask you which one you prefer, would you like a life of difficulty or would you like a life of pleasure? Would you like a, a life of, of sacrifice and pain or would you like a life that is immunized from all of those things? Our flesh will always choose the path of least resistance. We protect ourselves, we strategize, we insulate ourselves with our finances, with our material needs, with our, 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 our desire to live long and prosper, and we, we do these things at the expense of, of just radically obeying the expectation of the Lord on our lives. Now, I'm not accusing here. Please understand my heart on this. 
I'm speaking more to the crowd today to, than I am to any one individual. I don't know where a single person in this room outside of myself, I don't know where anybody is with God right now. I have no idea. I'm not qualified to know where your heart stands. And so I'm thinking in big picture terms, Jesus confronts the loyalties of everybody in that crowd that day. Think, think of, just think of the, the technique he employs here. In, in modern day church growth movement, which is ridiculous, by the way, and for the most part, unbiblical. The message is made more appealing, easier to receive, more pleasant. Tell them every good thing that Jesus will ever do for them. Pray this prayer. Just acknowledge you're a sinner. Go ahead and get that technicality out of the way and pray this prayer. Ask Jesus into your heart and you'll go to heaven when you die. And friends, that is such a, an abysmally incomplete gospel presentation. Because Jesus is saying this, yes, you have a list of priorities and loyalties in your life. Everybody's underneath me. That's what the king says. So go a little further. Y'all still with me? Nobody has run out screaming yet, so. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. And you have to hear me on this. The gospel message is a message, yes, unto life, but through death. You see, there is no resurrection prior to a crucifixion. And there is a hunger in our hearts to experience all the resurrection, the glory, the joy, the power, the breakthrough, the anointing. We want all of that from the Lord. And the Lord says, great, now go get your cross and follow me and you'll experience all of those things. You see, look there in verse 27. Here's the call to die to ourselves. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's telling the crowd in two sentences, hey, discipleship, following me, belonging to me is no easy commitment. That's what he's saying. Now, very quickly, I was actually taught very early on as a believer that there's two tiers of Christianity. There's this massive group of saved people who can just pray this prayer and ask the Lord to come into their heart and they'll go to heaven when they die. And if they want to get serious about the Lord, they can. But if they don't, no biggie. They, they're not going to have as many rewards, but at least they'll go to heaven. I was taught that. And then you've got the bionic Christian. You've got the studs and the studettes of the kingdom. And they are rip-roaring, sacrificial, and sold out, and giving, and serving, and praying, and fasting, and doing, or going to the nations, and doing all that. Those are the super special saints. You know, that sounds like something man would come up with. It's really sad that Jesus never taught that. Paul never taught that. John never taught that. James never taught that. Jude never taught that. You can't find it in the Bible. Jesus is not saying, hey, you're in the kingdom, but if you want to go to the next level and be my disciple, then these are the things you've got to do. They're, they're the same thing. To follow Jesus, to belong to Jesus, to be saved, to be justified, is by definition to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is doing here is he is putting forth the highest level of demand on us for a couple of reasons. One, he's going to call them to think it through before they commit because there were some people that were uncommitted in the audience that day. But he's also giving us a diagnostic to look at our own lives. Because if he's saying this is the life of the disciple, but if I am constantly putting Jesus underneath my relationship to Amy, can I call myself a disciple? Or if I'm constantly trying to protect my kids from the will of God because he might send them somewhere where I won't be near them, am I a disciple? Or if, if I've insulated my life with enough 
um, Christian seasoning, but at the core, I'm still living for the world. I'm still living for myself. I'm still living for money. I'm still living to protect and preserve and insulate and to prosper myself. And in, in the act of doing so, I'm disobedient to the general mandates of the gospel. Can I really say that I belong to him? Jesus is emphatic. He cannot, he or she, cannot be my disciple. He says, you've got to carry your cross. You know, modern Christians think of the cross in a radically different way than Jesus' audience would have heard that on that day. To them, crosses were offensive. They were torturous. They were instruments of execution. And they did not, crosses did not represent salvation. We have a very nostalgic, even I think theological view of the cross. And so I don't have any problem with somebody wearing one around their neck. We've got one right over here. I don't have any issues of that. When I tell you, you go back 2,000 years and you see a cross, you want to head the opposite direction. The practice of the Romans was when a condemned criminal who had forfeited all of his rights, who had no appeals left, when he had no ability to save himself, no second agenda to prosper himself, he's dead, he's condemned, and they would see these criminals carry the horizontal beam of their cross to the place of their execution. If you saw a man in Jesus' day carrying a cross, it was shame, it was a loss of reputation, it was an absolute um, uh, declaration that he has no more rights, he has lost it all, he's forfeited it all. And Jesus uses that imagery to say, you have to carry your cross and you have to come after me or you can't be my disciple. Now, let me be clear here. The Christian message does not call us to revel in shame. We're not called to go around self-flagellating and beating ourselves and hurting ourselves and doing all these things to prove our unworthiness and our guilt and our shame and how wormy we are before the Lord. That's a mischaracterization of what it means to be a Christian. But it does mean this. The person carrying their cross has nothing that he claims as his own, including his future. He is a man 100% under the authority of another. And Jesus said to the crowd that day, I'm looking for people who will follow me. By the way, remember, he's going to be carrying a cross very soon. And also, the disciples that followed him, with the exception of Judas, all met with similar kind of persecution and condemnation from government, from society, and from the religious leaders of that day. He wasn't just using symbolism. He was speaking literally, but it also speaks to us today about the level of commitment that we have to Jesus. Now, friends, I can't preach this message without providing opportunities for, I think, a healthy reflection on where the church is today. And I would say this, although I, I love what God's doing here. Listen, the crowds are growing. Didn't phase Jesus, doesn't phase me, doesn't phase Dustin, doesn't phase Gabe, doesn't phase Billy. We're not impressed with the crowds. What we're looking for is that we might follow Jesus, that we might bear our cross, and anybody we can influence, that we might help them to do the same. So as the crowds increased there, Jesus pulled out the message of hardcore, the hardcore components of what it means to follow him. And this is not a day where any of us, and I believe that the time is coming soon, the second coming, I believe, I can be wrong, could be, could be centuries away, but my personal opinion, my personal belief is that in my lifetime, I will be a witness to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if there's ever a time for us to get real, even if we have to get raw, but we cannot be uh, caught up 
in a cultural Christianity that doubly damns people who never surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus said it this way. If you're not willing to bear your own cross, and by the way, he defines what that cross will be for you. He says you have to be willing, whatever it is. Your cross is not going to look like mine. By the way, your boss is not your cross. That stubborn person that provoked you over Thanksgiving is not your cross. He's talking about identifying with him in such a radical solidarity, a radical submission, a radical surrender to the Lordship of Christ, that whatever cross he lays upon you, whatever yoke he puts upon you, that you trust him ahead of time. So go down further. He's going to tell us to think about this. I love the practicality of the Savior. Here's the kingdom's radical calculations. Because some of the crowd were seriously pondering whether or not to commit to Jesus. And he says, before you do, I want you to go through an exercise with me. He gives, he gives them and us something to consider. He, he, he puts up two illustrations. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower? And then the second illustration is, what king going out to encounter another king in war? So follow with me here. Jesus is giving two illustrations about what it means to be a follower of him. And by definition, a radically committed follower. Not a superficial follower, not a nominal follower, not a name-only Christian, not a, a Sunday glide in, glide out, and then back to real life kind of believer. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying here, I'm going to give you two illustrations. It involves both a building and a battle, a building and a battle. The first illustration is an individual that is building a tower of some sort, and he's going to lay a foundation for it. The second is an illustration of a king with a smaller army being aware that a king with a greater army is coming his way. So you've got these two metaphors in this illustration that Jesus employs, but I don't want to just stretch them out to where they mean nothing. I want to talk very practically and apply this to our life. Is your Christianity building something, and is it battling something? What are you building for Jesus? This is not meant to induce guilt. This is meant to provoke us to think about our lives. That's what he's doing here. Is your life building something? Are you intentional? Are you doing something besides just kind of oozing into the masses who are just living for the American dream? To, to get as much as we can, keep as much as we can, dabble in some good stuff to soothe our conscience, but ultimately life becomes about me prospering me, me advancing me, me protecting me, me preserving me, and all the while I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll sing some hymns. You see, my friends, this is intense here because the, the metaphors that Jesus is using, talk about building something. Our life is not to be building a monument for ourselves. Our life is meant to build something that reflects the glory of Christ. And the most precious way that that can occur is if there is very little of ourselves to be seen in it. But because we have intentionally pursued him, intentionally, prom uh, not promoted him, but prioritized him, that he's more important than our families, he's more important than all of this, more important than myself, my dreams, my desires, my abilities, my gifts, my reputation, my education. But he's, he's the pinnacle. And because he is, I'm going to die to all these lesser things. Jesus says, when you die to that, then I want you to know when you come to that place of decision, your life will be building something. And because you're building something for his glory, I'm going to tell you, there's an opposing king that's going to come out to battle you. 
So if you're going through it right now, and some of you are, I feel grace on this right now. Some of you are trying. Some of you are committed. Some of you are surrendered. You're in a season of confusion. You don't have all of the clarity that you want, but you're not about to give up. But the battle is hitting you heavy, and you're thinking to yourself, what am I doing wrong? You're probably not doing anything wrong. You're probably provoking the enemy because you're doing something right. Jesus wants to cons- us to consider these illustrations. Go down. Let me give you the calculations I was talking about. He says, which of you does not first sit down and count the cost? Count the cost. Count the cost. He says, do that first. Do it first. Why? Counting the cost, whether he has enough to complete the tower And then the king, will he not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? You see, my friends, Christianity involves the heart, but it, it, it is not detached from the mind. We're actually supposed to engage our emotions, our intellect, our will, and obviously our spirit and our soul are going to be involved. I got all that. But I think the thing that Christians in modern day most often neglect is approaching their Christianity with their thinking. They, oh, it'll just happen, it'll just happen. I'm just feeling good, man. I'm feeling Jesus in the moment. Jesus does not encourage us to do that. If you ever wondered, if you've attended here regularly, the reason why we don't make intensely impassioned evangelistic, um, you know, invitations, come down, let us pray over you. You get prayed over, you ask Jesus in your heart. The reason why we don't do that is because it's a rare moment. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a rare moment when you're presenting somebody with the mandates of the gospel. We don't want them to make an emotional decision after that. We want them to make a decision that involves their will, their mind, and their spirit. The spirit governing their mind. Jesus says, you need to count the cost first. Some of you may be in the room and you've never committed your life to Christ. This could potentially even be offensive to you because I'm not preaching happy Jesus who's desperate for your attention. That's a false gospel. My friend, let me just say this. I just feel like I want to honor him in this. He loves us, but he doesn't need a single one of us. And what's amazing is because he loves us so much, he goes after us in a way that almost looks like he needs us, but he doesn't need us. Did you know the Godhead was perfectly fine before you and I ever breathed on planet Earth? And and it'll be fine after we take our life. He doesn't need us, but his love compels him to come after us. But when we are called to make our decision, he says, you need to think about what you're doing. Because you don't want to start building and you don't want to start battling only to not be able to finish. To not be able to endure. To not be able to end better than you began. And it is so easy because I don't think anybody in here came, came this morning or anybody that will listen to it online or later came in here hating the Lord or hating Christians. The problem is not that we hate God in the sense that we're antagonistic towards God. The problem is, is we love the world. We love ourselves. We have imbibed on the spirit of entitlement in this age, and we literally believe that we are entitled to all of the pleasures of the world, and then we can just take a little dab of Jesus and sanctify our lives. That's not the gospel. Friends, do you know how many people are going to have this Matthew 7 realization where they stand before the Lord at the judgment, and and the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you, and they call a timeout. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, I preached for you. I prophesied in your name. I was busy. I was serving. I did a lot of good stuff for you. And Jesus says, I never knew you. 
That's to me the scariest chapter in all of the Word of God because those are people that are convinced that they went all the way. And of course, Jesus gives the, the parables of, of the soil. And all of the soils except one end in death. They end in death. Some of them began well. Looks awesome. It's going to be a great harvest. The seed is coming up. And then it just kind of burns out. Why? It gets choked out by the stuff of the world. And we live in a day where, friends, I think that we've committed the sin of reducing the gospel to a 20-second prayer that we think leads to eternal life. And it doesn't. Jesus said, you have to take up your cross and before you do, sit down and count the cost because I call for everything. Let me give you some, just some nuances. It's funny, the time's getting shorter and I'm feeling bolder, but. Um, I know we all know this, and I don't even want anybody to say amen. Please don't amen this stuff. Um, man, your money is not yours. Your time is not yours. Your possessions, they're not yours. They really aren't. They're not mine either. I mean, that, it's not where I can just walk into your house and say, I'll take this, it belongs to Jesus. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, what I'm saying is, we, we believe the theology of nothing belonging to us. But then we live as if we've never heard that theology. Because we live to get more and protect what we already got. We protect our time. We invest it in things that are not kingdom-related. Say, well, Jeff, this, you're making me feel guilty. I'm not making anybody feel anything. What I'm saying is these are diagnostics to where we ought to consider it ahead of time. Where are we with him? Where are we? Can we sin lightly? Can we be, listen, can we actually be casual Christians? It's not about your personality. It's not about temperament. It's about what drives you. What owns your pulse? Can we actually meander our way as disciples? Ho-humming, cavalier, flippant, something good happens, it's incidental, that's fine. Can, can that actually be what Jesus came and lived and died and rose and ascended and is returning for? A bride that shrugs at him? I don't think so. So he gives us something to confront. Still using this metaphor of the builder and the battler, he says, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus says, you need to have the finish line in view before you hit the starting gun. You need to know where I'm taking you in the sense of full, wholehearted surrender. Not a, not a curt, curtsy to his lordship, but a bowing low to his lordship. And I don't think we're teaching this. I don't think we're preaching this. People would say, Jeff, that's just too radical. Where did it come from? I mean, literally, where does this come from? It's Jesus preaching. Jesus preached it way more radically than we did, than we do. He, he, he wants us to confront two things here. First, the potential for us burning out. 
He says, otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. When the guy laid the foundation to the tower, he had in mind that he was going to knock this thing out of the park. It was going to be a great tower, probably over a vineyard where he could see people coming in to steal or animals coming in. It was very common in that day. But all he had was the foundation. Back in the mid-1990s, our church, which was Meadow Baptist back then, we were in Duluth, and we were contacted by a church uh, in Lawrenceville, and they had gone through a terrible, divisive split. And there was a lot of shenanigans going on, but ultimately their bylaws said they had to donate their property to a like-minded church. And so for $1, we bought, I don't know how many acres, maybe six acres, an uh, existing building. And then over to the side of the existing building was this massive concrete slab that had been poured. It had been prepared for. It had been paid for. And for years, nothing had been built on it. I drove by there. This was in the mid-1990s. I drove by there the other day. Same little building, same concrete slab, nothing on it. It, it stands as a representation of so many lives in the church that start off with a bang, and they're grateful, and they're rejoicing, and they're broken, and they love the Lord, and they're serving, and they're giving, and they're sacrificing, and it's all genuine. It's moving. They feel it. They believe it. They're giving, and then the thorns come up, and the cares of the world, and the discouragement, and the, and the hypocrites in the church, and all of the stuff happens, and it just chokes out the seed, and that thing that was planted never grows. It dies. And some would have us to believe, well, yeah, they just don't have any fruit or any rewards. No, it ends in death. That's not a picture of a Christian life. It ends in death. Burning out happens. You start well. It's not how a person starts. Everybody in the room who's been a Christian longer than probably two or three years knows somebody that was a shooting star for Jesus, and then a time later, you couldn't find them anywhere. I've seen so much of that in pastoral ministry. To the point where I have to guard my heart when I see some zealot on fire for Jesus, I literally have to get in my prayer closet and say, God, let me believe that it's real. Because I've seen so many, Lord, that look like her or look like him, and they flame up and then they flame out. Friends, listen, you're not done yet. And if you're not moving and pressing in to him more as Lord and King, then I'm going to tell you to do something. Consider your salvation. Consider it. If it's easy to say, for you to say, yeah, I'm just in a bad season, how long has that season been going on and when will it end? And, and where, do we get the, where do we get the permission to exonerate ourselves from rebelling against the lordship of the king? Some burned out and some sold out. Verse 31, 32, this other king, while the, the big king was coming against the little king, while the little king saw that the other king was a, a yet a great, great way off, he sends the delegation and he asks for terms of peace. That can be a picture of just saying, you know what, I'm looking out there now. I'm not cut out for following Jesus. Um, I'm, I'm not going to hate Jesus, but I, I'm not cut out for the battle. The battle's too tough. I'm going to lose some stuff. What's being required of me is going to call for a fight. I'm going to have to fight my flesh. I'm going to have to fight the world. I'm going to have to fight the devil. I'm going to have to fight my attitude, my heart. And all. I, you know what? I tell you what, the, this, this opposing force, let, let me just make an agreement with it. Can't we all just get along? Jesus is using these illustrations to show the condition of the human heart. 
And he's speaking to a crowd of people that on some level were interested in him and what he was offering. And what he's telling them is he's saying, don't commit to me unless you are prepared to finish. That is intense. We have inverted this thing. We say, yeah, just make your commitment to Jesus. We hope it'll work out. And Jesus said, no, don't commit to me unless you are committed to go with me unto the end. Some of you aren't going to like what I'm about to say, but I do believe this. If you don't finish with him, you never genuinely began with him. And so going further, this is where he brings us to our radical prioritization for every believer. It's only radical because the church has gone lukewarm. If we lived in the first century, everybody was trying to live like this. But now, this kind of thing seems radical to us because we are dull. We're dull in our, our worship. We're dull in our assessment of his glory. We're dull in our estimation, our esteeming of what he did to bring us into the kingdom. We're dull of his provision. We're dull of how committed he is to us. We just sang that song, faithfulness, faithfulness. You've never failed me yet. And those words are true. But I'm telling you, the church in the West, and maybe some in the room, we don't live like we really believe that. So Jesus addresses some people. Look who he addresses, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you, so he's not talking to the super Christian. He's not talking to those that are extremely gifted, those that have it all together, those that are walking in a high level of anointing. He's not singling them out. He's not even singling out the 12 disciples. He's saying, any one of you in this large crowd that is approaching me today and attaching themselves to me today, any one of you. So I want you to hear this. Maybe if you get nothing else out of this message, maybe the seed will take root and, and bear the fruit of humility and brokenness in us. Jesus does not divide his followers into levels and tiers. It's the same call on all of us. It's the same exact expectation, which seems radical only to those who've lost their vision of the cross. If you will gain a vision of the cross and tarry there, linger there until your heart is broken afresh, what the innocent Lamb of God did to purchase you, to purify you, to preserve you, if you will stay there until your heart ruptures again, this won't seem radical. And once that happens, then if we will just stay affixed on his throne and his glory and his supremacy and the fact that he's coming back to planet earth, do you remember what he asked? He said, when the son of man returns to earth, will he find faith? It was on his heart all the time. Who's going to finish? Who's going to finish? Who's going to walk all the way with me? When I return at my second coming, who will be faithful to me? I'm sorry that so many guys like me, men and women that have proclaimed, preached, taught, and discipled, have given two generations of Christian option A and option B when it comes to following Jesus. I apologize on behalf of all of us. There is no option B. Christianity is an all or nothing commitment to a king. He said it himself to the extent where 
it could eventuate into death. And at the end of the age, it will for millions. Millions of Christians will have to give their lives because they would not recant. And I'm afraid that in this luxurious age that you and I are living in, we have conveniently divvied up the bride. This type of Christian, this type of Christian, this type of Christian, this type of Christian. So look at what he requires. Because if you've doubted me, then just listen to him. He said that all of you, if any, therefore any one of you who does not renounce all, all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Now, if that doesn't mean what it means, what does it mean? The, the word in the Greek is the word from which we get apostatize. Jesus is saying, I want you with your life to apostatize against this world. I want you to commit heresy against the God of this age. I want you to turn your back on everything that pulls on you. And he equates it with things that we, we have. I don't think it's just money and material possessions, but if you know the messaging of Jesus, he hit that constantly because I believe it is the number one rival uh, to the hearts of man. Men, men and women think if I can just get enough money, what happens is they insulate themselves. They feel like they have no need. Why would I need God? That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. So he says, you have to renounce it. Does that mean you're, you have to intentionally give it away? If he asks you, yes, absolutely. Does that mean that we're not to have a house? We're not to have transportation? We're not to have clothes? We're not to have enjoyment? No, I don't find a vow of poverty in here that is given across the entire church. But I want to tell you something. We're so far away from that. We can't cop out with that extreme. What I'm saying is this, man. We, listen. Your time, your money, your giftedness, you're for the kingdom. That's why you were born. You were born for King Jesus. He wired you. He put you all together. He, he has an assignment ordained for your life. And many, 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 many people who name the name of Jesus take all that he has made them for and they pour it into fruitless endeavors that will not matter. They will not matter. And meanwhile... The king is not glorified in this generation like he could be. You know, right now, there's a bunch of anonymous adults working with three and four-year-olds and six and seven-year-olds downstairs because they think the kids are worth it and they think Jesus is worth it. There's some people that aren't in service every time we meet because they're saying, my time is not my own. We have a need here. Let me do it for the Lord. I was so blessed to see Jeremy and Juan. I don't, really don't want to embarrass them at this point, but the reason why I don't see them in here a lot is because they're, they're serving you. They're serving especially the new people that come here. They're serving those that are getting baptized. They're, they're, it's just that idea that says, it's, it's not mine. I don't get to keep. That we're not a bowl that receives and holds, but we're a pipe that receives and funnels through. So let me finish up here. Um, I, I, I might just finish right here, actually. Have you renounced you yet? It's the question when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to following Jesus. Have you renounced you? Have you, have you looked at yourself in the proverbial mirror and said, 
It's not about me. It was never to be about me. It's never going to be about me. But interestingly, 2,000 years ago, for a moment of time on a, on a cross, Jesus made it all about you. He's not asking us to do anything that he doesn't do. If, if we don't renounce all that we have, he said this, not, not just some screaming little short Irish preacher. He said this, he said, yeah, you, you can't be mine. You can't be mine. I don't know um, what you believed when you came into the kingdom, the day you entered by faith. I think most of us responded to what we knew to respond to. But I just want to say, if the Holy Spirit has pierced your heart that you're not who Jesus has called you to be, don't get hung up on, well, was that prayer back in 92, 84, 71, or 53? Was that real? Did I get saved then? Too much time between now and then. This is what you do. You renounce the ownership of yourself right now. Say, I am not my own. I am bought with a price. And Jesus, I repent of all of these lesser loyalties. I surrender and I bow to you. You deserve it. You've earned it. You're the Lord. And I'm sorry that I've made it about me, my comfort, my wishes, my vision for me. Lord, I lay it all down. And I crown you intentionally. The Lord of my life, and with your help, I will follow you to the very end. So Father, with heaviness of heart, but also hope in my heart, rescue us from the deceit. Rescue some from religion today, Lord. Let them know that's why they've been so frustrated and fitful. It's because they tried to reap at a surrendered level when they've never entered the surrendered level. Just let them know, Lord, you're there to shepherd them. You're there to free them. You're there to deliver them. And Father, I pray great sobriety. Empower us to finish well. We are not done yet. Lord, we will not, as a church, rest on what we've done in the past. There are more missionaries to be sent. There's more territory to be claimed. Lord, there is more intercession to go up, more seeking of revival, more sets to be filled and accomplished as the incense on the altar keeps burning on Collins Hill Road. We're not done yet, Lord. We're, we're tired in some spots, Lord, but you're worth it pulverize the complaining spirit out of us. Cleanse us from our self-absorption and give us that cleanness and that freedom of release and surrender, knowing that people that carry their crosses have no secondary agenda. You're worth it all. 
In the name of Jesus, your son, amen and amen.